Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. We've got loads of announcements today, but before we get on to those, let's get straight into talking about some modern history. Now today, the thing I particularly want to talk about is Britain's interests in the Eastern Mediterranean in the mid to late 19th century, what could be called the Eastern Question. Now normally, um, Britain and the Eastern Question relates to the... the um, crisis that the British government and the opposition have thrown into over um, Russia, Turkey and the Balkans in from 1878 onwards. Um, but the Eastern question for me goes back far further than that. Um, and I think it really goes back to um, the, the mid-19th century, the Crimean War and Anglo-Russian rivalries over India. Um, in many ways, the the question over the uh, East has been one that has dominated everything since 1815 and the Congress of Vienna. There seems in 19th century political discourse in Britain to be this innate antipathy towards autocratic Russia. Britain had had um, a series of reform acts throughout the 19th century, 1832, 1867 and 1884, where the, the franchise is gradually increased and the uh, the country is democratised. Uh, in 1815, it was perhaps not as feudal as Russia. We don't have an institution like serfdom, but certainly not particularly democratic. But throughout the century, a process of democratic liberalisation occurs. And there is a, a, a much greater sense in Britain that um, the rule, some kind of rule of parliamentary law, a constitutional monarchy and um, a uh, greater um, progression towards uh, civil rights and individual rights is really the, the, the correct direction in history. So there is this um, real um, antipathy and distrust of autocratic Russia and we normally think of ourselves as having um, acute Anglo-German tensions um, within the, the late 19th century. And these are a really, really um, minor and um, short-lived phenomenon compared to the antipathy uh, that Britain has towards Russia. And the number of times where Britain is, does go to war with Russia and is prepared to go to war with Russia... And the um, real turnaround in um, sort of 1907-1908, when a uh, Anglo-Russian Entente is signed, is is quite an enormous revolution in Anglo-Russian diplomatic affairs, and really totally overlooked, totally overlooked um, the um, 
Anglo-French Entente Cordiale in 1904 is seen as being far more important uh, and Anglo-German relations, but the um, ability of Britain to forge a relationship with Russia in the uh, half decade before World War One is quite extraordinary. And the reason for this is that um, Russia is not only seen as autocratic and undemocratic, but also there is some sort of um, ancient anti uh, sense of um, barbaricness about Russia, about the, the Russian horde um, and its ability perhaps to march into Europe when it sees fit. This is very useful during the Napoleonic Wars, of course, and really brings Napoleon to his knees. But there's an, an immense anxiety over Russia and also uh, Russia's ability to march uh, and her constant march uh, eastwards into what would be now uh, seen as um, places like Kazakhstan and the uh, former Soviet Central Asian republics and the, the ability from there to threaten Afghanistan and thereby India. And these are the kinds of anxieties really that are responsible for the formulation of Britain's anti-Russian policy during the Crimean War. Britain looked upon the Ottoman Empire, um, sat, sat to the south of Russia, um, that dominated the Balkans, Turkey, um, the, uh, near, and the Middle East, um, the Arabian Peninsula, parts of North Africa, including Egypt. They looked upon the uh, Ottoman Empire as being the lesser of two evils. The you know, typical uh, British um, imperial chauvinism looked upon the um, Ottomans as being little better than medieval despots and a, uh, a backward uh, oriental kind of culture existing there that was um, really quite inferior and, again, viewed as um, you know, unjust, undemocratic, unfair and unlawful. Though in many ways, um, none of these titles particularly apply to the Ottomans. The uh, culture of the Ottoman Empire was far more diverse and advanced than uh, British imperial chauvinism gave it credit for being. However, the uh, Ottoman Empire had been weakening throughout the 18th and 19th centuries and their hold over their imperial acquisitions had been in gradual uh, decline particularly Egypt, which had become almost a self-ruling province within the Ottoman Empire, and also over the Balkans, particularly Serbia, who had once again had become this sort of self-ruling suzerain within the empire and would gradually come to cause the Ottomans ever greater degrees of, of, of trouble. Um, throughout the 19th century, the uh, designs of Russia over the Balkans and the, desire, the desire of the Russians to meddle internally within the Ottoman Empire come from two sources. Firstly, whenever Russian czars appeared particularly weak or ineffectual um, or struggled to control their own people, they dealt with periodic rebellions in the countryside, normally as the result of famines, the uh, projection of Russian power abroad uh, became far more important and essential. The Russian people could at least rally behind a nationalist figurehead who would be restoring Russian pride. Russian um, pan-Slavic ideas, the idea that the Tsar was the Tsar protector of all Orthodox and Slavic peoples, particularly those of the Balkans, drove Russian foreign policy to, to meddle in that region throughout the 19th century, and the Balkans is obviously the uh, part of the, the Ottoman Empire. 
the um, other um, prong of Russian um, anti-Ottoman policy is again um, the Tsar's desire to protect orthodoxy and particularly the um, holy places within the Ottoman Empire um, that that cover um, the sites of um, uh, the Orthodox Church. So um, aspects of um, the old Byzantine Empire that was, uh, that was the birthplace of Orthodoxy, of which, of course, Constantinople, now known as Istanbul, was its epicentre. But within Jerusalem as well, um, holy Christian sites were especially um, sought after as places where the Russians could exercise power and could um, project their own um, military and religious authority over to extend some kind of protection to them. And this really kind of make them uh, orthodox sites, and we, we are, are talking about some of the most fun fundamental locations of um, the, the Christian faith. The wider goal of Russia within the Ottoman Empire was really to bring the, the Ottomans to their knees and to make the Ottoman Empire um, not necessarily annexed by Russia, but a puppet state uh, that the Tsar of Russia could use to his advantage. Now, this didn't suit the British. Any expansion into the Balkans by the Russians or any control over the Ottoman Empire not only meant that India was uh, more um, uh, came under greater threat, but it also meant that the routes to India come under greater threat. Now, by this point, uh, by the time of the Crimean War, the Suez Canal hasn't been um, created. However, the Sinai Peninsula is still a very important route to the British. It really is very inconvenient to have to go around um, the Cape of Good Hope, and instead the British um, sail to Egypt and cross the Sinai um, using um, wagon trains and all sorts, uh, all, all means of conventional transport to the other side, uh, and then sail on. And in the other direction, that's how goods reach Britain, particularly cotton. So um, a control, um, having the uh, Russians have a presence in the Ottoman Empire would be very, very bad for business. The other problem that the Russians present to the British is the uh, control by controlling the Balkans, they would shut off access for the British to the Danube. And it, uh, British trading ships um, made huge sums of money by sailing up and down the Danube and uh, trading in, in that fashion. In fact, the um, number two uh, market for all British goods was indeed the Ottoman Empire. So uh, preventing Britain from accessing the Ottoman Empire would have been uh, a very, very, uh, very, very, very disadvantageous to the British and something that they were not willing to accept. Now, the situation is complicated in April 1876, by an uprising against the weak. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Ottoman authorities in Bulgaria the um, Bulgarians for a month uh, from April to May managed to uh, revolt successfully against the Ottomans but the um, suppression of the revolt is uh, a uh, one of the great sort of war crimes of the 19th century. The um, Ottomans employ their bashi bazooks, their mercenaries um, a kind of, I suppose, akin to Britain's black and tans in Ireland, to um, engage in a campaign of terror uh, again in the uh, in Bulgaria to um, put, put down the revolt. Um, an American uh, journalist for the Times uh, contacted the uh, head office in London and ran they, they ran a series of stories about the horrors of the Balkans, which seemed to really capture Britain's public imagination. Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister of the day, was a pro-Ottoman um, supporter, not out of any love for the Ottoman Empire, but out of a belief that really the Russians were the greater threat, and it was expedient for the British to prop up the Ottomans in order to keep the Russians out. William Gladstone, the leader of the opposition, a high-minded moralist of the First Order, Though, ironically, when he comes to power in 1880, he winds up in all sorts of uh, unfortunate period entanglements. William Gladstone leads a, a campaign against this cynicism, as he sees it, against Britain's support for um, the atrocities against the um, good Christian peoples of Bulgaria by the Muslim horde, in his uh, his view. And um, he he's very successful. In, he, of course, it's the Midlothian campaign, which is... Um, he was campaigning really for the, the seat of what, what would now be Edinburgh, but the seat of Midlothian. And um, he really uh, whips up an immense amount of um, uh, angst against Israeli's government. Here's a little extract of something that Gladstone wrote in uh, 1876. He wrote, he said, The details of these abominations may be read in published reports, now known to be accurate in the main. They are hardly fit for reproduction. The authors of the crimes are the agents, the trusted and sometimes and the since promoted servants of the Turkish government. The moral and material support which during the year had been afforded to the Turkish government has been given by the government of England on behalf of the people of England. In order to a full comprehension of the practical question at issue, it will be necessary to describe the true character and position of the Turkish power and the policy, as I think it is questionable and erroneous uh, policy of... An 
and the, on the policy, as I think it is questionable and erroneous policy, of the British government. At the end of the Crimean War, with the siege of Sevastopol, the Russians had been forced to surrender and had been forced to sign a, a treaty that prohibited them from using the Black Sea. The Russians had sought a warm water port throughout most of the 19th century because it was virtually impossible to operate a large fleet from somewhere like um, Kronstadt, which was frozen over for half the year, or Vladivostok, which uh, suffered the same. So a warm water port um, on the on the Black Sea and access, hopefully, to the Mediterranean was really the holy grail. And Russia spies an opportunity in the Balkan outrages to, to get what she wants. The Russians prosecute a war against the Ottomans, n n ostensibly in defence of their Slavic Orthodox brothers, but really uh, in uh, defence of Russia's own interests. And they defeat um, the Ottomans uh, successfully. And the price that Russia um, demands is a large Bulgarian state carved out of former Ottoman territories in the Balkans. And this large Bulgarian state will be a, a protectorate of Russia, um, really a Russian colony. The, uh, it'll have a large part of the Adriatic coastline. No, beg your pardon, not the Adriatic, the Aegean, sorry, my bad, the Aegean coastline. And this will enable the um, uh, Russians to use warm water ports along the Aegean and have access to the Mediterranean, and then, now that the Suez Canal has been dug, to, if they choose to, to cut the British off from Suez, which would make it almost inevitable that the British would lose India if the Russians did decide to attack or decide, did decide to foment revolution in India. So this is intolerable, intolerable to the British. And it's also intolerable to the Austrians, who have their own interests in the Balkans, and they do not wish to see the fermentation of, of um, uh, nationalism within the Balkans and the, form, the, the, uh, the creation of nation-states, which could have huge implications for the, the Austrian Empire. So these two powers decide that they will threaten war, um, if this issue isn't resolved. And uh, in order to prevent a wider European war, Bismarck, um, the uh, German Chancellor, who doesn't really wish to see his Russian and Austrian allies come to blows and for him to be dragged in on one side or the other, um, calls a, co a congress in Berlin in 1878, which is uh, um, uh, attended by Disraeli, and it is attended by Lord Salisbury, his deputy. And the two of them have a gay old time in um, in Berlin. It's, uh, there are many uh, banquets and booze-ups and lots and lots of backroom deals. And Disraeli comes away with a promise that Russia will only be allowed a small Bulgaria and it will not have access to the sea. And... The, the the British are triumphant. The Russians are enormously angered and humiliated by this, and it really eventually leads up to the, the breakup of uh, German relations with Russia and uh, and Austria. Um, the Russians withdraw from the League of Three Emperors, and the um, emphasis of Russian policy after eighteen seventy eight is uh, is to project eastwards. One of the uh, long-term results of Britain's triumph over the Eastern question and the uh, use of uh, the uh, Congress system within Europe and European diplomacy to uh, put paid to Russian ambitions is that Russia eventually uh, expands further east and the um, 
the Tsars following um, Alexander II, Alexander III and Nicholas II become more interested uh, in places like Korea and Manchuria and they uh, eventually wind up treading on Japan's toes. So the um, disputes between Japan and Russia that eventually culminate in the Russo-Japanese War are, are there because the Russians have no uh, ability to expand their borders in the West or expand their influence in the West, particularly in the Balkans. And following the Russo-Japanese War, where does the emphasis of Russian policy shift back to? Back to the Balkans. So between 1904 and 1914, the Balkans once again become an area of great interest to the Russians. Now, of course, that's quite a, a simplified version of, of the Eastern question, but I think it's a pretty good one. Um, OK, so I, th- I hope that's been useful today. Now, I've got a load of announcements. Firstly, there's new stuff on the Explaining History YouTube channel, so go there now and subscribe. I'm putting on new videos every single day. They're ideal for, particularly for students, but I'm putting stuff on for non-students and enthusiasts and people that just love modern history. So um, go there. If you go to www.explaininghistory.com, you can click through, as a link on the front page, you can click through there to the um, Explaining History podcast subscribe and i'll keep you updated with not just podcasts here but video there and there's tons of stuff about how to tackle practical problems like essays and that kind of stuff so please make sure you you subscribe to that um coming soon we've got penguin books are sending me some new review titles so hopefully we're going to have some real real quality material to um talk over uh, and uh, to get to give you some help on And finally, at the end of the month, the first Explaining History study course is going to be launched online. So this is going to be really, really good. It's going to help you with an awful lot. The first study course is going to be on Russia and the causes of the Russian Revolution. So it's going to be um, everything I've done over the past 20 years, all the uh, teaching, all the... um, tutoring, writing and learning I personally have done compiled into about six hours that are going to take you from uh, wherever you're at in your studies to outstanding marks. Um, I'm going to show you simple strategies that I use to uh, help students uh, excel uh, and and get top grades and I'm going to show you how they're quite easy to replicate. So I'm going to take a lot of the the mystery out of getting top marks in history and make it really, really simple and straightforward, straight, straight, straightforward for you. Okay, so I'm going to be launching it on the 1st of October, and there's going to be a special introductory price for everybody that follows Explaining History. Thereafter, it kind of will go up, because I, you know, I've got to pay the mortgage, got a kid on the way, that kind of thing. So um, make sure that you um, follow the link on the 1st of October to get the special introductory price. It'll be cheap as chips, absolute bargain. And thereafter, um, you know, I'll be adding the new material to the audio, the audio and video course every single month. So um, the, the, the deal just gets better and better. Anyway, keep a lookout for all these things and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. 
It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.